Hello, I'm Paul Bristol and I'm working with the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network to find and share stories of community-led climate action. As we live through and continue to cope with the ongoing pandemic, there's been lots of talk around a new normal. For the first time, many of us have started to question what was so normal about how we lived before anyway. And there's an increased interest in the space where climate action meets social justice. A green and just recovery, universal basic income, ideas once out in the fringes may be finding their time. The next few months and years we'll see a battle to frame and tell that story, to make those changes. We need to take this opportunity to show how what we've seen in these last few months can help us imagine better and continue to make the case for action on the climate emergency. And so I want to learn more. Sometimes it maybe feels like everyone's just ploughing their own furrow, out in a limb, just getting on with it. But the collective effort across the country is remarkable. So over the next few months, I'm speaking to people and communities across Scotland to hear their stories of climate action, of hope and change. From big changes to small steps. I want to hear it all. And then together, we can look beyond the new normal to something better. A few weeks back, SCAN were delighted to host Professor Sir Geoff Palmer in an online discussion as part of our Tuesdays for Climate programme. It was the most popular session we've run so far. Hundreds of people came along. And Sir Jeff spoke about the intersection between Black Lives Matter and a just transition, and how we need to ensure that racial justice is embedded in any move to build back better. Well, what I'm going to talk about tonight is um, something about, you know, climate change and racism. And I'm going to put it in a historical context. And I'm going to read a paragraph from a document which relates to a case in, in Edinburgh, which is called the Joseph Knight case. And this case um, was about 250 years ago. The point is that this case is very important because people have said that this case abolished slavery in Scotland. I, I don't think it did because Joseph Knight wasn't a slave, he was a servant but we will leave that for the time being. What I'm going to do is to read a paragraph from that case where the lawyers were trying to justify slavery in the Caribbean. And this is the paragraph, I'll read it. It says, Europeans, particularly the natives of the Northern parts, such as Britain, are perfectly incapable of labor in the climates where sugar is produced. A Negro, if not overworked, can toil under the influence of a West Indian sun without impairing his health or shortening his life. Whereas a native of this country cannot support labor in the same proportion for a month without certain destruction. Now that was written by somebody, a lawyer in Edinburgh, 250 years ago, and it's about climate. 
It's about the myth and the lie that black people are framed for slavery. Black people can stand the sun. So that's why we can enslave them without any conscience. And therefore, what we had over 300 years or more is that black people were taken from Africa, transported to the Caribbean under the law. British law actually said for a black slave, which was a chattel slave, a slave has no right to life and was property. And we can see that in terms of when the slaves were emancipated in 1834, the government gave 20 million to the slave owners because the slaves were property and they were losing their property. And therefore, we therefore had a slavery where human beings were designated property, beaten to death because they were black, beaten to death under the myth that a European cannot, in fact, work in the sun. Now, what we have, and I can't go into the details of, of, of slavery, but if we look at the consequences of this slavery, what we have is, um, uh, you know, people planting sugarcane in enormous quantities over hundreds of years. We've got coffee being planted as well. We have cotton being planted as well. And how do we facilitate the production of these crops? We have to take down trees. So trees were cut down in the West Indies so that white people can plant the crops they wanted for which could be sold for enormous amount of money. So therefore it was black lives didn't matter then. Now what we have is what effect did that have on the climate or the environment? Over the years, the soil was completely exhausted in terms of, 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 its, of its nutrition. What we also have, the water system is affected. And what is interesting is that the original name for Jamaica, where, where I come from, the Arawak Indians before Christopher Columbus went there over 500 years ago, the natives called Jamaica, Examaica. And what Examaica means is a land of wood and water. A land of wood and water. And what did the slave owners did? They cut down the trees and they damage the water system. Damage it in such a way that I think I was listening to a, 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 a program, you know, not long ago, 
where the Jamaica Prime Minister was talking about um, setting up a contract in order to improve the water supply. And they were going to put down new pipes. This is the land of wood and water. New pipes, because the pipes left by Britain, you know, in 1962, were rotting. And it was going to cost something like about 25 million US dollars in order to do this. Now, we have this legacy of people being assigned to a climate situation on the basis of their color and also what we call their race. There is no scientific evidence that human beings are different races. The fact is that it's uh, uh, Kant and, 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 his, and his colleagues decided that human beings, human beings are different races. There is no scientific justification. There's no evidence for this whatsoever. The point is a lot of people have been killed over that concept. And this must stop. What we also have, if we look no more in general around the world, as opposed to using Jamaica as an example, and I'll finish with Jamaica because as a boy, I remember going to my bed one night as a boy. So you're talking about 70 years ago. And the wind came up and the wind blew and I looked up and the roof of our house had gone. I was looking at the sky and it was raining. And my aunt came up and said, don't get out your bed, boy. Because you go out in a hurricane, you will die. In fact, when, when the trees were removed, the slaves died because their housing condition was so much poorer than the slave owners that they were outside, no trees to protect them. And therefore, I was lucky as a boy at 10. I was in a house, but it, the roof had gone. And following that, we had polio session after that hurricane, and we didn't go to school for months. So therefore, the removal of our environment because of slavery based on racism put a lot of Caribbean islands in an awful economic position, which we must try and address. We, as I've often said, we cannot change the past, but we have the consequences of poverty. Now, if we look at the world as a whole, I've done a little biology and botany so I know a little bit about photosynthesis. And what I'd like to say is our food supply is based on the climate. We need the sun, we need water, and we also need carbon dioxide. The irony is plants need carbon dioxide to produce starch 
and sugar. They need carbon dioxide, but we are producing more carbon dioxide than the trees need to feed us. The point is that this is something we have to manage. We have to manage it because I know a little bit about carbon dioxide. At high concentration, it is a poison. In companies where I know where there is high levels of CO2, they make sure that it goes down on the basement because it is heavier than air. And therefore, this is one of the, I was thinking this morning, an adult standing in CO2 could breathe well, but a child is in the CO2 to a greater degree because it's heavier than air. These are little things we don't think about, but could be important in terms of health of children. Now, if we look in general, CO2 as a whole, 80%, about over 80% of the CO2 that is produced by humans come from the richer countries. Over 80% come from the richer countries. If we also look at CO2 production over the last 100 years, my mother was born in 1916, my late mother was born in 1916. If we look at the CO2 when she was born in 1916, compared to 2020, it's about a hundred times greater, the CO2. So somebody who looked after me had a different CO2 level to deal with than I have. And therefore, we cannot pass this on in the next hundred years. That is going to be another hundred times greater. We have to do something now. And as far as I'm concerned, the passage I read at the beginning, it is that passage that killed George Floyd. It is that passage, a passage where white people think that black people are suited to cut sugarcane, are suited to have poor living conditions, are suited to have um, a short lifespan, are suited to have COVID. The point is that the circumstances of which black people live in are produced by white people who do not have a regard for this planet we live in. It's self-serving greed, which must stop. And finally, what I would like to say is that we, we are one humanity on one planet. And therefore, we are living, we are the past of the future. We are the past of the future. And therefore, we have a responsibility to ensure that we do not pass on our greed and avarice. We're producing more CO2 than we should, and that we are taking down trees. And let's face it, without trees, humanity 
has gone from this planet. Trees keep us alive. And therefore, what I'm hoping, you know, I'm 80 years of age, so <laughs> the point is that I think for the young people, we have a responsibility to ensure that we pass this um, environment on in a manner that is respectful and respectful of life, the life of those in the future. Thank you very much. My hometown, Greenock, was a sugar town and a port, and so like many places, our street names celebrate that legacy. Looking out my window, I can see the red brick of the old sugar warehouses built in the 19th century, and it seems that even our most famous son, James Watt, had connections to the slave trade and chattel slavery. That legacy is difficult to grapple with, but we have to. I'm never really sure about the argument that the street names and statues help us learn from the past, because it feels like if that were true, we'd be past having to have these conversations. But if we are in the mood to learn more practical lessons from history, many of the factories and refineries at that time were powered by the water that ran off the hills. Greenock has a particular abundance of this natural resource, and back then we used it. Now it mostly just floods the main road at high tide. How amazing would it be to live in a town where when it rained, instead of feeling grey and miserable, you knew it was helping generate power, maybe even generating jobs and income. I was actually lucky enough to work on a project last year which Sir Jeff was involved with, which looked at Scotland's links with the slave trade. We were working with young people and as part of that we looked at one of the stories of Anansi, a trickster god from African folklore. And I thought I'd share the story with you. It's called Anansi and the Pot of Knowledge. Anansi is the Spider King, lord of all the stories. Sometimes he looks like a spider, sometimes like a man. But always he's a trickster, trying to get one over on folks. Now Anansi was already clever, but he figured if he gathered all the wisdom of the world, he could keep it hidden away. Then he would be the smartest creature in the world. So he gathered it all in from the wise folk in the secret places, all the wisdom in the world, and he sealed it in a pot. Anansi knew where to hide it, at the top of a tall thorny tree in the forest. Anansi's son, Kuma, saw him sneaking into the trees, and decided to follow him. The pot was too big for Anansi to carry. <clears throat> the pot was too big for Anansi to carry while he climbed the tree, and he kept slipping back down, and he got angrier and angrier each time. Tie the pot behind you, and you'll be able to climb properly, said Kuma. Anansi was so annoyed that Kuma was right that he let the pot slip. And it smashed, and all the wisdom fell out. And just then, a storm came and washed the wisdom into the river. From the river, it washed out to the sea, and then all round the world, and into all of us. Anansi and Kuma walked home in the rain, and Anansi was a little wiser. What's the use of all that wisdom, if a child needs to put you right? Anansi's stories are the best, but there's certainly some relevant symbolism there in terms of suggestions of young people being ignored or people greedily trying to control resources, in this case, the resource of wisdom itself. 
I also think there's something in the idea of all of us holding on to our stories, forgetting to share them, when they're so much more valuable when shared with everyone else. That's why I told that story at a session for SCAN in August. You can watch lots of SCAN events back on our YouTube page. And I then asked everyone to quickly, quickly put together a personal story about their own connection to climate action. No time to overthink it, just the first wee story that came to you. And Tansy kindly shared her story on the night. So um, my son Finley um, is eight years old and um, he goes to our local gardening club for children. And he asked um, us for a polytunnel for his um, Christmas present. Uh, it took about two years, um, but we finally got the polytunnel. Um, he's still interested in it and planned it and helped with it a little bit. But, you know, as these things happen, he's kind of drifted a little bit and it's now really my polytunnel um, and I'm absolutely loving it. Um, when he was interested, he took a um, pack of lettuce seeds, all 200 of them, and um, sprinkled them all over the polytunnel. Um, and they took, they took really well. And in fact, the polytunnel is completely and utterly full of lettuce, very large lettuce. Um, I went off for a week and left my, um, my husband to look after the polytunnel. Um, when I came back, um, he said, oh, there's, there's dinner in the, um, in the fridge. Um, there's some salad and, and some quiche, you know, help yourself. So I said, oh, great. I said, you know, you, you went in and you, uh, you, you harvested some lettuce. That, that's lovely. And he looked at me and a little bit nervous and unsure. And, and, and he said, well, actually, no. He said, I, I tried to go into the polytunnel, but I felt so intimidated by all the salads and vegetables in there. But he said, I, I, just, I just couldn't do it, he said. So there's a bag of lettuce from Tesco's in, in the fridge for you for, for your lunch. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I, I have given a lot of lettuce to a lot of, um, a lot of the people in the village and, um, and made some good friends as a result of that. Intimidated by a superabundance of salad. I feel like I can relate to that on a number of levels. So thanks for listening to A Thousand Better Stories from the Scottish Community's Climate Action Network. Thank you to Professor Sir Jeff Palmer for his wise words and to Tansy for her gardening tips. Next time, as the colder nights and the dark draws in, we'll be looking at community energy and energy efficiency. And if there's something happening in your community, be sure to let us know. You can drop me a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk We're on Twitter as well at Scott C. Can. And on Facebook, just search for Scottish Communities Climate Action Network. Over the next few months, we'll continue to run workshops to help you tell and share your story of climate action. So check out the website and sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date.